All right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're in Genesis chapter 22. We're going through Genesis and we're looking at the gospel in Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter 22 contains probably one of the more well-known stories of the Bible. And we've spent uh, several weeks now on, on uh, the life of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22, I'm going to read Genesis chapter 22, and then I'm going to read um, uh, some verses from Hebrews chapter 11. So follow with me. Let's begin in, in uh, Hebrews 22 verse 1, and let's read the chapter together. If a man, oh, I'm sorry, let me get to the right book. It'd probably make a lot more sense if I read Genesis 22 instead of Exodus 22 to you. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, with Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkeys, the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behold, there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. And um, because that's primarily the section of Genesis 22 that we are going to deal with. Now, I want you to hold your place there and go over to uh, your New Testament to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 11. Verse 17. Let me read to you verse 17, 18 and 19. Hebrews eleven seventeen says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. 
Okay, so here in Genesis chapter 22, we've come to this point in Abraham's life where Abraham now, remember he'd been waiting and waiting and waiting for this promise of a child and he got tired of waiting and decided he'd, he'd make a child happen on his own. And so him and Sarah came up with this plan and he, he uh, uh, produced a child through, his, um, through Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. So his firstborn child actually was Ishmael. I want you to notice here that God never refers to Ishmael. God says, take your only son, Isaac. And so God related to Abraham according to the promise. He did not relate to Abraham according to the flesh. The promise to Abraham was first mentioned in Genesis 12. Let me just read that to you. Let's go back uh, a few pages in the very beginning, when we first came to Abraham in the book of Genesis, we see this in Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is where God first gives this promise to, then it wasn't Abraham, it was Abram. And, and so Abram gets tired of waiting, produces Ishmael. God says, nope, Ishmael is not the child of promise this time next year. I'll come visit you again, and Sarah is going to have uh, a son. And so Sarah produces Isaac, and Isaac is the child of promise. And we see that when Isaac is weaned, this is what we looked at last week, when Isaac was weaned, they threw a feast, and it says that Ishmael was 13 years old, and Ishmael looked, he scorned Isaac, and Sarah saw that, and she said, Abraham, I want you to send Ishmael and Hagar I want you to send them away, cast them out. And, and Abraham didn't like that. The Bible says it displeased him greatly. But the Lord told Abraham, he said, listen to your wife, Sarah, for in Isaac shall your seed be called. That's Genesis 21, 18. In Isaac shall your seed be called. And so we see that, or in, in 21, 12, he, he goes ahead and he obeys God and he cast out Hagar and Ishmael. And now God, in relating to Abraham, relates to Abraham according to the promise, and he does not acknowledge Ishmael. Now, what I don't want you to do, I, I had someone ask me a question last week, uh, and they said, um, because we talked about how it wasn't what Ishmael did that caused him to be rejected. It was who he was not. And so when we look at the gospel in Genesis, we're looking at the big picture. What is God communicating here? And he's communicating his plan of redemption. He's giving us detailed, he's painting a detailed picture of the gospel, of, of his promise to send a savior. That promise was first seen in Genesis 3.15 when God is pronouncing the curse on the serpent and on, on Adam and on Eve. And he says to the serpent, he said, I'll put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman will crush your head, serpent. You'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. The seed of the woman who is prophesied to come. And then God says to Abram, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And then after years go by, Abram says, how are you going to make me a great nation? I don't even have an heir. I've just got the servant, Eliezer of Damascus. He's the only person I've got to leave my stuff to. God, how are you going to make me a great nation if I don't have any children? And God says, you're going to have children. Go out and look at the stars. That's what your descendants are going to be like. And it still didn't come to pass. And so the child of the flesh came forth, Ishmael. And God says, that's not my plan. That's not the promise. In Isaac, your seed shall be called. And so God now has given Isaac to Abraham. And Abraham now has Isaac, who is at least uh, an adolescent. Isaac is probably anywhere from 13 to 30 years old, depending on what you want to believe and who you talk to. It doesn't really give us a specific age for Isaac. But I, I, Isaac was, was uh, a young man 
strong enough to carry the wood on his back. You see the, the types and the shadows here. Isaac is a type of Christ and Isaac is carrying the wood on his back, even as Christ carried the cross. And they're going up to this mountain on the third day. They come to the place on the third day of creation. God caused all the herbs and the plants and the trees, the seed bearing uh, plants to come forth because what did Christ do on the third day? He came out of the tomb. He was the seed that burst forth in resurrection life. So you see that none of this is an accident. God has ordered his creation because the whole order of creation is telling us a story. The whole order of creation is communicating to us the gospel. It's not an accident that an acorn, which is a seed, contains in it everything needed to produce a full-grown 80-foot oak tree. But that seed, that husk has to die. It has to be broken open for that life to come forth. And it doesn't come forth in the same way. It doesn't reproduce another acorn. It produces a tree. We read this at Cindy's graveside service when we were ready to plant the seed of her body into the ground. That's a seed planted into the ground. One day God will cause resurrection life to spring forth from that body and it will be raised a glorified body. That's the hope and the promise that God gives to those who are in Christ that our bodies, this corruption one day will put on incorruption. And so here on the third day, they come to the mountain and, and, and Abraham's taking Isaac up the mountain. And Isaac says, Father, he says, I've, I've got the wood. I see the, the fire. You got the knife, but where is the lamb? And I want you to see what God inspired Abraham to say, because this was inspired by God. Verse eight, Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself. A lamb. God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering or for a sacrifice. Now that is really important for you to pay attention to. You should mark that in your Bible. God will provide for himself. So Isaac, Abraham's only son, according to promise, he takes him up on this mountain this child of promise that God brought forth from the dead womb of Sarah. Have you, you, you know, you'll notice this with Abraham. <clears throat> you'll notice the same thing with Isaac. You'll notice the same thing with Jacob. God has a habit of bringing forth life from that which is dead. This is why Abraham got into trouble because he thought, well, Sarah's too old to have a child. Maybe, maybe we should have a child with this younger woman who can still bear children, who's still fertile. God says, no, I know how to bring life from that which is dead. So from the dead womb of Sarah, God brings forth Isaac, the child of promise. And that child of promise was brought forth, the Bible says, for the blessing of many. God would bless many in and through this one child. Galatians 3.16. Paul gives us a commentary on the promise of Genesis 12. The promise made to Abraham. Paul writes this, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as of many, but as to one and to your seed who is Christ. If you have a King James Bible, your, your, your English translation uses the word seed. If you have a more modern translation, it'll use the word descendants. Seed can mean descendants in, in, in that context. The seed of Abraham means the descendants of Abraham, but I like the word seed there because of what Paul writes in Galatians. Paul says God wasn't talking about seeds as of many. When God said, in your seed, the nations will be blessed. Paul says God wasn't talking about many descendants. He was talking about one seed. That one seed was Christ. So who was the child of promise? Ishmael or Isaac? Well, Isaac was the child of promise, but what does God say? In Isaac, your seed shall be called. 
Who did the promise ultimately speak to and speak of? To Christ. Who did Christ come through? Christ came through Abraham. Christ came through Isaac, through Jacob. We can go through the genealogies there in, in, in the Gospels and see the lineage of Christ. But the point is this. The promise was always about Christ. He is the promised seed. So the promise of God made to Abraham and his only son Isaac were ultimately made to and fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the only son and the one seed that God has always purposed to bring forth to be a blessing to the nations of the earth. So God related to Abraham according to the promise, not according to the flesh. God relates to us according to the promise in the spirit through faith in Christ. He no longer relates to us according to the flesh. So I quote the scripture quite often to you, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. We therefore know no man any longer according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. We know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. We talked about God rejects the first for the second. The purpose of that was to communicate to us Exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus. Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless the first man be put away, the second man cannot come. The promise is not made to the first man. The promise is made to the second man. The promise is not in the first man. The promise is in the second man. So in Christ, God relates to us according to the Spirit by faith, according to the promise. God does not know us or relate to us according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit of life in the one promised seed, who is Christ. So we don't improve the flesh. So the point of our preaching and teaching is not to make your flesh better. Because God is not interested in making your flesh better. The only thing God wants to do with your flesh is crucify it. That's it. Do you hear me? You need to hear this, church. You need to understand this. Preaching and teaching on Sunday morning or on Wednesday night or Sunday school or Bible study class is not to make your flesh better. It is that your flesh would be crucified, that the life of Christ could be manifest in you and through you. God only wants to do one thing with the flesh, and that's kill it. That's why he brought the flood. That's what the flood was a picture of. The flood ultimately was a picture of the cross, because in the cross is where God ultimately judges the flesh and puts away the flesh for good. This is why we're invited to take up our cross and follow him. So reckon yourself dead to sin, Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, but alive to God. In other words, crucify the flesh to release the spirit's life. The first man has to go so that the second man can come. The flesh has got to be crucified so that the life of the spirit can be brought forth. A seed has to fall to the ground and die in order for it to spring forth in new life and produce fruit. Do you think it's an accident that God created the earth in the created order the way he did, it's not an accident. God made seeds to function and to work exactly the way he made them to function and to work because he wanted us to understand a principle about spiritual life. I mean, we look at a natural seed and the same process a natural seed goes through to produce a tree, a fruit tree, is the same process we have to go through to be born again. You can't keep your life and gain eternal life. Jesus said, if you try to keep your life, you're going to lose it. Let go of your life, lose your life in order to gain life. If you try to keep the seed whole and keep it in one piece, you're never going to produce any fruit. There's never going to be a tree come from it. But if you'll let it go and fall into the ground and die and let that husk be broken open and come to death, God miraculously will bring forth new life from that death. This is the picture that's being related to us here through this story of Abraham and Isaac. 
we the many have come to partake in and through the life of the one. So God takes, Abraham takes Isaac up onto the mountain and Isaac says, Father, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, son, God will provide for himself a sacrifice. So he takes him up. Here's this picture of the one being given so that the many may come to partake. In your seed, in in your son, in Isaac, shall your seed be called. So in this one life, Isaac is a picture of Christ. He's a type of Christ. In Christ is the blessing of the many. In Christ, in the one, is life to be partaken of by the many. So all the blessing of God is bound up in the one seed. As a type and a shadow, God says, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. But Paul tells us that seed was not talking about Abraham's physical descendants. That seed was pointing to and referring to the one seed, he says, who is Christ, Galatians 3.16. So in the cross, Christ, the one promised seed, was broken for us, the many. And the many come to partake of the one life. And that one life, Paul writes, fills all in all. So in the Genesis mandate, when God tells Adam and Eve, go forth, be fruitful and multiply, he's not just saying, go and populate the earth with a bunch of little kids and fill the earth with the human race so we can have humans everywhere. That, that's, yes, that's true. We are humans and we fill the earth. But the point of humans filling the earth ultimately was that the image of Christ, the very life expression of Christ would fill the earth. It would fill all in all. And this is the point of Christ's death on the cross. Christ is one life manifest in many members. We, the church, are all many members, but we all have one life who is Christ. In other words, we're all part of the same family. This is why the Bible calls the body of Christ a family. It's why the church is called a body, a family. Families have something in common, right? Bodies, your body has some, your body has one head, Your body has one life. Many members, but one life. And so don't don't just gloss over those, that terminology in the scripture. God is very purposeful in how he describes his church, his people, as a body and as a family. So in Christ, we are the many who have come to partake of life in the one. So Abraham offering his only son is a picture of the seed that must die to bring increase. And I quoted to you John 12, 24. That's where Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. This was... Remember in in John's gospel, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus is preaching and it's getting toward the end of the day and and, um, it's like, man, everybody's hungry. They've been here for a long time. We should send them away so they can can eat. Jesus says to his disciples, you guys feed them. So, well, we don't have enough food to feed all of these people. And so you see that this one little boy comes and he brings, we have the lunch of one that ends up feeding what? A multitude of people. So back in those days, they counted, they counted, uh, they counted numbers based on households. So when it said 5,000, it was basically 5,000 households. So the reality is the feeding of the 5,000 was, was very possibly the feeding of 10 to 15,000 if they're counting households. 
But let's just be conservative and say it was only 5,000. We still have the lunch of one child, five barley loaves and two fish. We have the lunch of one that feeds a multitude of many. So the point of the feeding of the 5,000 is the breaking to bring the blessing. That story is not to encourage us to feed the poor. And we should feed the poor. And we do feed the poor. And we do support that. I'm not saying it's, we shouldn't feed the poor and support the poor. I'm saying that's not why that story's in the Bible. The feeding of the 5,000 is not there to convict us to feed hungry people. The feeding of the 5,000 is there to show us that the blessing comes through the breaking of the one. It's a picture of Christ. Christ is the loaf. He is the bread of life that's going to be broken. I mean, you, you saw this. So he breaks the bread at the Last Supper. Then after his resurrection, and he's on the road to Emmaus, and he's walking with these two disciples that knew him personally, yet they did not recognize him until they compelled him, stay with us, and they stopped at the end, and they sit down at the end, and they sit down at the table. And Jesus breaks the bread, and it says, at the moment Jesus broke the bread and offered the blessing, their eyes were open, and they saw that it was Jesus. The point of this story is that through the breaking comes the blessing. Through death comes life. God called Abraham to take Isaac to the mountain, his only son, because this was a picture of the father in heaven who was going to send, who eternally always purposed to send his only son. And the breaking of the son from heaven would bring life to the many. Christ gave his life so that his life could live, listen to this, in a new corporate body called the church. Christ's body was broken so that his life could live in a new body, and that new body is the church. Yes, Jesus was physically raised with a glorified, resurrected body, but his life is not contained to that one physically resurrected, glorified body. On the day of Pentecost, he poured out his spirit on all flesh. Now, when you are born again, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead comes to dwell within you. You now have in you, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. That means you have the life of Jesus in you. You have the same life as the resurrected Jesus in you right now, that should blow your mind. And the fact that it really doesn't blow our mind really speak to the fact that we really don't comprehend the reality of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. This is why we are now one body expressing one life. We are many members. But in this many-membered body, there is the expression of one life. It is the life of Jesus. So increase, the increase is tied to the death. It's much greater than Jesus dying for our sin. It's that Jesus was given as the life of your soul so that there would be an increase of him in a body or so that there would be an increase of him in a kingdom, or so that there would be an increase of him in a harvest that is the gathering in of the people of God that we call the church today. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, God tells Abraham in Genesis twenty-two eighteen. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16 who this seed is. This seed is Christ. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. You curse Christ and you're going to be cursed. You bless Christ, you will be blessed. This is not about a political entity or a nation state on the face of the earth. This is about this one seed of the one and only begotten son of God. There is only one way to life and that is through Jesus Christ.
We should support our friends in the world. We should support Israel. I'm not saying that. We should. We should pray for that nation. But the point of Genesis 12 was not to focus us on a nation. It was to focus us on a person. One man. The one new man who would come forth from death. Conquer death. Conquer the grave. Come forth in a new creation. In new life. And make a way where there was no way. So Abraham goes up on the mountain. And he ties up. uh, He binds Isaac. He puts the the wood down. He lays Isaac on top of the wood. He's getting ready to plunge the knife into his only begotten son. And a voice from heaven says, Abraham, Abraham. Aren't you glad Abraham could hear God? Here I am. Don't harm your only son, Isaac. Behind Abraham, there's a ram caught in the bush. And he sacrifices the ram. And Abraham says, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, your provider. God will provide for himself. The whole thing is for himself. Do you see that? God will provide for himself. Look what Abraham says. In chapter, in chapter uh, 22, in verse 14, and Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. Or if you've ever heard the phrase Jehovah Jireh, that's what that means. Now we take that phrase, Jehovah Jireh, the, and the Lord will provide, and we apply it all kinds of ways. I'm guilty of that. But we apply it improperly most often. So think about this. God says that he will provide for himself. The whole thing is for himself. It's for his glory. It's for the increase of his seed who is Christ. We benefit from that. So this whole thing about creation, God creating man. So some Christians have this notion that God created man because God was lonely. God was not lonely. God did not need man. Man needs God. There was nothing about God that was lacking. There was no lack in any way, shape, or form in, in, the, in the triune Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. They lived in perfect community, perfect harmony. There was absolutely no lack there. When God created man, it wasn't that God needed man. It's that, listen, God created man, and man inherently needs God. In all of this, we want to we want to believe that somehow this is all about us. That somehow the world revolves around us, but the world doesn't revolve around us. This is not all about us. This is, it all is and has always been about God. And God has brought us into this story, this creation, this this thing that he called out of nothing. He made everything that is out of nothing. He created us and he put us in this created order. And he created us in his image. And he has made each one of you. He has made us absolutely unique. In every way. Yet he's made us the same in many ways. We're kind of like snowflakes. You know, we all, from a distance, we all kind of look the same and we, we can think about all the similarities, but if you really start looking at them, uh, you realize that each one is unique. I, I think human beings are the same way. And we've come to preach this gospel that is so focused on a personal Jesus that Jesus has now become my personal ticket to health, wealth, and prosperity. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is my provider. God's got to provide. No, that that provision is not about you. It's not about me. God didn't say, Abraham, I'll provide for you. He says, I will provide for myself. The sacrifice was for himself. It wasn't for us. It was first and foremost for himself. Do we benefit 
you better believe we do. And we benefit more than we could ever imagine or comprehend. Don't believe that God is your provider because of Genesis twenty-two fourteen. Believe God is your provider by looking at the created order. This is what Jesus, Jesus didn't say, hey, you guys remember what Moses wrote in Genesis twenty-two fourteen? the Lord is your provider. No, Jesus said, are you worried about provision? Well, don't worry about provision. Look at the birds, look at the flowers. Look at the created order, how God takes care of everything in creation. Are you not more valuable than the flowers of the field? Are you not more valuable than many birds? When we look back to Genesis twenty-two fourteen, we shouldn't think about our personal provision. We should think about the sacrifice God provided for himself and made a way for the many to become partakers of the one life. That is the life of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the point of the story is not so that natural man can learn natural lessons like, I'm just going to put this on the altar and see what God does with it. If God lets me kill it, then I guess he wants, wants to die. But if God stops me, then I guess that's not what that story's about. Jehovah Jireh is not revealed so that, that I can claim natural provision from God. God provides for us. This is understood by looking at creation. The point of Abraham declaring the Lord will provide is not for our personal natural provision. It's a declaration that God will and has provided for himself a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was never meant to be Isaac. It was eternally meant to be the only begotten son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. When God created Adam, God knew Adam was never meant to be the man. He was the first that would be rejected. So the second man 1 Corinthians 15, so that the second man could come. Because we don't have life in the first man, we have life in the second man, Jesus Christ. We don't have life in the man from, uh, that's made of dust, we have life in the man, the Lord from heaven. We have bore the image of the man of dust, but listen, I've got good news. If you are in Christ, you will also bear the image of the heavenly man. This body, your body, if you are in Christ, one day this corruption will put off corruption and put on incorruption. Put off mortality and put on immortality. How is that possible? It's possible because of what Jesus Christ has already done. It's possible because he has already been that husk that has fallen to the ground and died and broken open, has sprung forth in new life. He is the first fruits of resurrection. And now we are being born again in his nature, in his likeness. Light begets like. It's a, it's a, it's a law of creation. God put that law in creation so that we would understand that one day when we were born again of the Son of God, we would be raised up in the life of the Son of God and become partakers of his divine nature. We don't become God. But you absolutely have the life of Jesus Christ in you right now. That's how you are alive. So the point of the story is that God has provided for himself a sacrifice that would be the increase and in the glory of his seed and the fulfillment of all his promises and blessings to the many in the one son who is the Lord Jesus Christ. We become partakers of those promises and of those blessings through Jesus Christ. Becoming a partaker of his promises and his blessing in Christ means that we become partakers of his life that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. This is what Paul writes in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Becoming a partaker of his promises and blessings in Christ as a promise and a guarantee of eternal life in a more eternal weight of glory. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 says these 
these light afflictions are working for us a more eternal weight of glory. Don't ever believe that whatever you go through in life, no matter how joyous and wonderful and blessed it may be, or no matter how hard and difficult and traumatic it may be, God uses everything to work in you a more eternal weight of glory. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily easy or carefree. That's not what we're promised in Christ. That's not the life that we're promised. We're not promised a life just filled with health and wealth and prosperity. In fact, it could mean the opposite. In Christ, Christ promised that our life would be filled with tribulation in John 16, with difficulty, with testing, with fiery trials. But it also promises that in all these things, we are more than conquerors, whether difficult or easy, rich or poor, full or hungry, mountain or valley. In life and in death, in Christ, we can learn to be content in whatever state or condition we find ourselves. For we can indeed do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That's what Philippians 4, 12 and 13 declares to us. Paul writes this. Paul says, I've been all of these things. I've been at both extremes, but I've learned this, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God provided for himself a sacrifice so that through the one promised seed who is Christ, we the many can not only partake of his life, but that the life of Christ through the many will be manifest in all the earth to the glory of God the Father. This is what Habakkuk the prophet writes. He speaks of the day when the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is exactly what Paul the apostle writes when he talks about Christ who is filling all in all. Paul was talking about the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ that would fill the earth in the created order. That act of faith, when Abraham carried his son Isaac to that mountain, that act of faith spoke of that one life that would be given to impart life to the many. We read the scripture in Hebrews where it shows us in Hebrews that Abraham knew that even if Isaac's life would have been taken that day on the mountain, he knew that God would raise him back up because he had already received Isaac from the dead. Because Abraham had already seen by faith the resurrected Lord Jesus. He saw the promised seed that would come through his promised son, Isaac. John 8, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced. He saw me and rejoiced to see my day. The people listening to Jesus, chided Jesus, made fun of Jesus, thought he was heretical for saying that because they couldn't figure out how Jesus, who wasn't even 50 years old, could say that Abraham saw him. Because they were carnal men who could not comprehend the things of the Spirit that Jesus was saying. But now when we read Genesis 22... And you wonder, how did Abraham have the faith? How could he do that? How could he take his son up there? He did it by faith. He did it because he knew that whatever might happen, he saw the end. He saw that Isaac would live and that through Isaac, the promised seed, who was the resurrected Christ, would ultimately come one day. And God had Isaac take had Abraham take that son up there. He recorded this story in the Bible. He recorded it for us because he wants us to understand that he has always had a plan. In eternity, he had a plan. He didn't create plan B when Adam fell. He had a plan in eternity. And Christ was the eternal plan. Christ was the eternal man who would come and walk a perfect, sinless life. Christ was the one promised seed that must be broken open so that life could spring forth, so that the many could become partaker of the one life. Christ made sure there was a little boy who was willing to give his lunch on that day that they fed the 5,000 because Jesus wanted to teach us not that it's good to feed poor people, but that life comes from death and from the breaking comes the blessing and from the one comes life to the many. 
This is the lesson throughout the scripture. When you read the Bible, read the Bible with those eyes that are looking for the gospel and the gospel message. Don't read the Bible looking for a way to figure out how you can get more blessing from God because I'm telling you right now, there is nothing more that God can give you that's greater than what he has already given you in Jesus Christ. And if you think getting your house payment and your car payment and your utility bills is greater than Jesus, then you need to get born again and you need your eyes open and you need to see that God has already paid the highest price and given the greatest gift when he gave his son and he has recorded a whole book full of holy inspired scripture to to reveal to you that truth so that you can go through this life not in fear, not doubting, not wondering what's going to happen but knowing there is a God of creation who had a plan before there was a beginning, before time and space existed. He had a plan and he created you and made you part of that plan and if he created you and made you part of that plan then he knows how to take care of you he knows how to provide for you he knows how to heal you he knows how to take you home to glory he knows everything and you need to trust in that God but if God is just some man some old guy up in heaven who 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 gives his attention to the highest bidder who has favorites down here on the earth, who can be manipulated by our prayers and by our whims, if that's the God you think that you, that if that's the God you want to serve, I, I just pray that your eyes be open to the true and living God. If you think we serve a God who's subservient to a devil who's only in control sometimes instead of all the time, and that everything of this created order serves him and is for him and is for his glory... That brings peace. That tells me I don't have anything to fear. Now, that doesn't mean I always like what God does. Listen, I I can have lots of disagreement with God about things God does in my life. And, And there's lots of circumstances in my life right now I would change if I could, naturally speaking. But thank God for the Holy Spirit who lets me know and corrects me and says, you might change that, but God loves you enough that he's not going to let that be changed right now because God is working out his plan and his purpose. And sometimes I say, God, how are you doing that? It just doesn't seem to make sense. But have you come to realize that, that God's dealings and God's workings don't always make sense to us? Because sometimes we don't, we, we only see in part, we only know in part. Most of the time. But when you begin to read the Bible from the perspective that God has had a plan since eternity, you realize, okay, I don't understand everything right now, but that's okay. God's got this, and I'm going to trust him. And that necessitates that there are things in and of our life that have to die. Starting with ourselves. I'm not talking about a physical death. Long before a physical death, you need to die. Paul calls it being crucified with Christ. It's death to the self. So here's, I want to challenge you this morning. I want to I challenge you with this question. Do you feel God's call to come and die? To die to yourself, to crucify your self-will, your self-made plans, to allow yourself to decrease that he would increase. You know how contrary that is to our culture today? Everything about our culture screams we must increase. Everybody wants to be famous. Everybody wants to be known. Everything about our culture, it's not just our culture, it is the fallen nature of sinful humanity. But here's the way of the kingdom. I must decrease that he may increase. This is what John the Baptist, the greatest prophet said. I must decrease that he may increase. Do you feel that call? If you feel God's call to come and to die, I challenge you to lose your own life and to gain his. To release your own will and to embrace his. To ask him to break open the husk of your life that the life of Christ might spring forth to increase in joy 
and in glory. That's where your joy really is, church. Whatever joy you might find in this world is fleeting. Unless you find the joy of the Lord, unless you find Christ, who is our joy, it is the only joy that is lasting and eternal. And it will sustain you and strengthen you through anything and everything God may allow you to walk through on this earth. I challenge you to see that God has already provided for himself a sacrifice. And in providing for himself, he has provided for you all that pertains to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. I challenge you to seek first the kingdom of heaven and to trust that all that you need will be added to you according to his good plan and good purpose in Christ. Let's all stand. I challenge you to stop and to wait and to listen for the call of God to do those things I've challenged you to do. Let's pray. As we pray, I just pray that your hearts and your minds are open to what God desires to do in and through your life. Father, we confess our fears, we confess our doubts and our sinfulness, God. We fall on your grace, Lord Jesus. You've provided for yourself a sacrifice. Lord, reveal to us by your spirit that in doing so, you have provided all that we need. Give us the grace to trust you in all things. Give us the grace to walk by faith and not by sight. Give grace to us, the many, to manifest the one life of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, give us this grace that you would be glorified in the body and in the life of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray that you be glorified in your church. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.